Assalamu alaikum. Uh, Jazakallah khair everyone for joining us today. Uh, especially, you know, now that we're in the very last stretch of Ramadan, we know how uh, important uh, all these moments are and uh, how, how, you know, uh, how precious the, this time is. Jazakallah for spending that with us. Uh, welcome to another episode of uh, the House of Akram podcast, live recording. Um, and you know we're we're in Ramadan. We know that Ramadan is the month of the Quran. Uh, our emotional and spiritual connection to the Quran uh, is something that we focus on a lot this month. We try to read more of it. We try to memorize it. Uh, we try to we we listen to more of it during the Salah. But really, we want to understand what this book is, right? We can't just treat it like it's a it's a it's a nice book or it's a holy object. It's 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 a living word, a living guidance from our Creator, and uh, the Quran itself actually, uh, you know, kind of gets us to 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 think about this. Uh, in the Quran in Surah Baqarah, Allah says, "Indeed, in the creations of the heavens and the earth, the alteration of the day and the night, the ships that sail the sea and benefit uh, and for the benefit of humanity." The rain sent down by Allah from the skies, reviving the earth after its death, the scattering of all kinds of creatures throughout, the shifting of the winds and the clouds drifting between the heavens and the earth. In all of this are surely signs of people of understanding. Still, there are some who take others as Allah's equal. They love them as they should love Allah, but the true believers love Allah even more. If only the wrongdoers could see the horrible punishment awaiting them, they would certainly realize that all power belongs to Allah and that Allah is indeed severe in punishment. Uh, the reason for mentioning this ayah, uh, these ayat of the Quran, is it's interesting because Allah mentions in the beginning the signs of his existence, you know, the intellectual proofs of his existence, that everything uh, that is in the creation uh, clearly points out to the fact that there is a creator. Um and then he links that intellectual certainty, that understanding it of him with us loving him, with us loving him more than, you know, uh, a Christian might love Jesus or a Hindu might love Ganesh, right? And the reason for that is because for us, we don't have to make a choice between what we know and believe to be true from our minds and our hearts, right? Allah, Allah gives us proof. Uh, that he exists, and Allah gives us proof that this message is from him. And so that's the that's the purpose of this event, as the title says. We're going to be talking about how we know, like intellectually, how can we prove that the Quran is from Allah. And uh, Before I get started into the actual topic, uh, I wanted to just give you a scenario as to why this topic is important. Not just for us as Muslims in Ramadan, but for anybody. And you know, uh, uh, both me and Malik have a background in da'wah, in street da'wah and other forms of da'wah to non-Muslims. And it's sometimes important to draw home to them why this is an important conversation. And what I usually like to do is I like to give them a scenario. The scenario is, you know, say you go home tonight and you go sleep in your bed. You wake up the next morning and you're on an airplane. You look around, you see there's other people on the airplane, you ask them, hey, how, how did, what, what happened? And nobody seems to know what happened, right? Uh, you're being fed, the airplane's comfortable, it's moving, so it's clearly going somewhere, right? 
And, but no one seems to have any idea what happened, right? You were on your bed, you just got on this airplane. What do you think some important questions would be? And I'll open this up to the audience. What do you think some important questions would be for someone who is on this airplane? Uh, yes? How did I get here? How did I get here? Important question, right? What, what else is an important question do you think someone might have on this airplane? Brother? Are they dreaming? Is it all their imagination? Is it real? Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, who, put me here? who put me here? There's another one that's very important. Remember, you're on a moving plane. What is the, what is the destination? What is the destination? Where are we going? Right? And if you think about it, this is the scenario of your life. Now, there's people who will tell you that these are not important questions. The important question is, what are we going to eat? The important question is, what movies are on the plane? The important question is, what's the most comfortable seat you can get? Uh, what are the mechanics of the plane? And how did it come together? And, you know, like, what makes the propulsion work? And those are all questions. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those questions. But is it the important question? Is it the most important question? If you don't even know how you got on the plane or where this plane is going to land, how can you feel safe? How can you feel like you have any purpose in life if you don't know who created you, who put you on this earth, and you know you're going to die, you know we're all going somewhere, if you don't know where you're going to go, right? And so the point of this scenario is to say that our life needs to have a purpose and that purpose could only be communicated by the person who put us in this life and who created this life for us and who we're going to be returning to after this life. And this is like very crucially linked to not just an emotional question, but it's an intellectual question. Once you understand, like when you're convinced intellectually that this is the book of Allah that you're holding in your hand, when it talks about the fire, when it talks about the paradise, when it talks about everything, uh, when it describes Allah, it'll, it'll create a real emotional response in you. Because we don't have to choose between thinking and feeling. In Islam, our thoughts, our beliefs, our convictions, and what's in our heart are aligned. And that's part of the guidance from Allah. Um, so with that, uh, inshallah, we're, we're gonna start our, uh, our topic. And uh, I want to first uh, get Brother Malik to introduce himself. He's been very quiet so far. Assalamualaikum. How are you doing? Waalaikum salam wa barakatuh. Anything you'd like to add just to, just to that introduction? Yeah, I think that uh, just to make it uh, personal is that uh, especially um, in the environment that we, uh, our community is in, you know, as someone who was born in uh, Canada and who was, um, grew, grew up here. Now, of course, I grew up a long time ago, as you like to always point out. He's at least a hundred years old, guys. <laughs> so, uh, back in the, even though this is pre-internet time, and this was in the, um, this was in the, uh, uh, like I went to high school in the, in the early '90s, and though uh, there's uh, like the new atheism now, I, I used to encounter atheists in in high school, right? Um, and and so this is a real challenge, and this is only amplified with the internet, uh, with the toxic culture on social media. Uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, attacking people and things like that for their beliefs and things like that. Uh, I remember one youth uh, explaining how uh, 
he was talking to his friend and his friend didn't realize he was a Muslim and uh, uh, the you know then he suddenly like he started attacking Islam right, mm, right. And, mm. and then he's like wait I'm a Muslim right so <laughs> it's uh, so, so 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 the point is is that, that that this is a really important topic because it's about confidence right and, and it's kind of like a dual problem right like one of the mm. problems is that uh, what is the real role of the mind in the deen right because on the one hand it's for some, for some people the, the mind will lead you away from the deen Mm. And the other side of it is emo- if it's just all emotional, it'll also lead you away from the dean. So what's the proper role of the mind? And I think that's one of the, you know, what, when we tackle this, I think the important thing is that the mind helps us to walk through the door of Iman, understand, you know, the proofs. But once we're inside the door of Iman, then it's about samana uh, wa We hear and we obey, right? We hear and we obey once you know that. Because now you, you, now you know it's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells you to jump, you start jumping. You don't even ask how high, right? Yeah. Because we know the Creator exists, we know that the Allah is, uh, has full knowledge of all things. And so, if He's prescribed for us something, then this is uh, then we know this is the truth. So, and and I, me- I remember uh, when I was at one of the MSA events uh, when I was uh, uh, you know in my early years at university, uh, you know, like the speakers talking about these mystical kind of experiences, and I'm like, I'm not really getting these mystical experiences, so. You know, am I, is something wrong with me, right? So I think that's the emotional side is that if you don't have that anchor to understand how to walk through the door of Iman, through the rational proofs, uh, it really puts us in jeopardy and, and exposes us to the society. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I've, I've grown up both here and in the Muslim world. I spent uh, some of my time in Saudi where I was born, but I came here in elementary school and did middle school there, did high school here. And there's a lot of people in the Muslim world who are very emotionally attached to the deen, but they don't have that intellectual foundation. And then when things get difficult in their life, right, when uh, you know, their parents get divorced or someone passes away or you know, life gets difficult, suddenly they're like, well, you know, the deen's not really working for me anymore. And so it must not be true, right? And that's why you need that intellectual anchor for sure. So what, we are gonna be talking about uh, why the Quran is the word of Allah, right? But before we do that, I think it would make sense for us to have a small conversation, not make this the whole topic, on how we know there is a creator to begin with. How do we know that the world was created by someone? Um, and so, Malik, you know, we've both, we've both done that, right? What's a, what's a good argument that you like to use uh, when someone, an atheist, comes up to you and says, I don't believe there's a God? Yeah, so I think that when... When you approach this question, I think the one of the most important things is a starting point, uh, because that can that can really drive how the conversation is. I think one in general, as Muslims, when we face tough questions about the Deen or about Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, these types of things, is we should always question the premise. Like, what is the premise of the discussion? Right? Is mm-hmm. it we should never accept the premise? Like, you know, are you with George Bush? Are you with the terrorists? Like, that's a kind of they're kind of putting you on a on a on a certain kind of they want you to go in a certain direction, right? Yeah. Uh, and so when it comes to the issue of uh, proving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists, the, the real question is actually a much broader question, which, t- which kind of goes back to what you were talking about, that airplane scenario, which is the question we all have, is how did we get on this plane? How, how did we get here, right? Yeah. So that's the, actually the starting point. It's not about necessarily about the, about the creator, but really what is the origins of reality? Like what, you know, where did, where did, he, where did life forms come from? Where did the planets come from? Where did humans come from? This is the real question. Because it, when, you, when you put it that way, someone, whether you 
whether you whether you believe that Allah created everything or you don't believe Allah created everything, it forces you to take a position, and then you have to produce your proofs, right? Yeah. And so, um, when it comes to uh, discussing the the proofs, I think that th the three things I would uh, invite you know our listeners here and online to consider is is there's three things. So first is this one is the setup. Is the question is where did this whole universe come from? That is the question. And then to answer that question, there's like a you know kind of non-starters like the you know the, the universe didn't create itself. It didn't come from nothing. And then the only really two contenders is you know the matter is always here, or it was created by other than itself. And if you're, I mean, of course the most important thing about this is for ourselves. Like yeah. I have to kind of put that here. It's not about battling atheists or body slamming atheists at school. Um, Don't do that. <laughs> I mean, intellectually. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but, the, but the point is, is that, uh, is, is that the, the, the really the only two contenders is really to kind of whittle it down to, is the matter always here, or is it always, uh, or is it created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So I, I guess what you're asking there is, is the universe eternal, yeah. or did, did Allah create it? That's, that's what you mean, yeah. Exactly. And so the two keys to answering these questions is, uh, is one is that is that everything is limited, right? And something limited can't be eternal, right? And it's an interesting kind of thing that if an atheist takes that position, they actually have the same problem as Christians, right? Because they're claiming, like, was Christians claiming that a man is eternal? Is Billah, they claim that Isa is the son of is the you know whatever they claim about him. Um, but then you're claiming the same thing about matter. Matter, this limited thing that you know, uh, you know, has rules and boiling points and things like that. You're claiming that this thing is eternal. And the, I would say the mo one of the most important aspects of when you look at the matter and you kind of look at this deeply, what do we mean by that it's limited? It's understanding that the rules that are imposed on it don't come from the matter. So whether mm -hmm. we're talking about boiling points, we're talking about nuclear fusion, whether we're talking about how the moon rotates around the, the, the earth and the earth rotates around the sun, all these rules and laws and, and the physics in its totality is actually a proof of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Not the other way around, right? Which is uh, the irony of ironies, right? Because it's all testifying that this matter is dependent on its existence for these rules. Like, for example, you don't have to kill me to prove me that I'm not eternal, right? You know that because I need water, I need food, that I'm limited, that I, I, that I, I have these needs, I'm needy, yeah. right? I'm needy of my environment, I'm needy of so many things. And if I don't have those needs, I will not, I will not uh, exist anymore. And matter has the same problem, right? Now you can zoom all the way into the atom. And those rules that make the atoms possible, it's you know, what separates the hydrogen from the helium. There's certain kind of nuclear physics that are behind it. It doesn't really matter what it is, but those rules is exactly what's keeping the matter together. And so there is a, a dependency, a weakness, that we can sense with our own rational intellect, we can judge this reality, we can come to the firm conclusion that matter is weak and limited and needy, and therefore it needed a creator to come to existence, right? Yeah, I, I think a good, a good analogy for some of the stuff you're mentioning, and I like using this. First of all, I love that you start with the idea that the other person has to prove something, as opposed to you having to prove something. I think the example of that is, you know, there's a hadith, I think, uh, I think it's a hadith, of a, of a Bedouin who was asked uh, you know, how do you know there is a creator? How do you know Allah exists? And he said that when I see the droppings of the camel, I know there was a camel, right? I don't have to see the camel. And so if you're someone who's denying the existence of a camel, then you're the one who has to explain how the droppings got there, right? It's natural to look at droppings from a camel and assume there was a camel, 
Similarly, it's natural to look at the entirety of the universe and know that it was created. If someone is claiming otherwise, now they need to do some proving, not you, right? Um, so I, I like that you, you flip that. Um, and when you talk about uh, you know, the rules, it, it's, it's like, a, you know, I, I think of it from like a programming perspective, right? If you see there's a program and all the variables are assigned certain identities and they behave in certain ways, that means the program didn't create itself. It means there was a programmer, right? So when we look at the universe and we see that water has a boiling point of 100 degrees, did water choose that boiling point? Did water make itself boil at 100 degrees? No, someone decided that, right? Gravity has, you know, the acceleration, which is what, 10, I don't remember, 9.8 or something, of a, of a falling object in gravity. Did the apple choose to fall that fast? No, it's, it's a law that's imposed. And so for these reasons, uh, I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's a really good place to start uh, with, uh, with the proof of the creator. But getting into the actual topic of our discussion, which is the proof of the Qur'an, um, Malik, what, what do you think is the best way to prove to somebody that this book from 1400 years ago is somehow a miracle? Because most people don't think of a book as a miracle, right? They just look at it as writing on, on, on paper. And so how do you begin that discussion with someone? Yeah, so I think it's, a, it's an important uh, question. Again, it, it's like, again, it's the point of starting points. It's a, where do you start? And, it, it, and it's, it's similar to where we started with the matter, right? It's like, where did, you know, the question is, where did this matter come from? And it's similarly, where the question is, where did the Quran, who is the author of the Quran? Where did the Quran come from? And it really boils down to four possibilities. Non-Arabs, Arabs, Rasulullah or as the Quran claims, to be from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are the only four possibilities. And just going aside, sometimes if you're talking to, uh, when you're having conversations with non-Muslims, um, even when you talk to them about, um, uh, the, you know, kind of the proof of uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can take sometimes <laughs> multiple meanings to narrow down that so these are the four possibilities because they're going here, they're going there. They're not used to thinking in a rational manner. So it's, it's, sometimes it's important to kind of slow down kind of discuss with people at their pace because the fal falsehoods are many but the truth is one right yeah. so all they've they've always been betrayed you know as kids they maybe believed in santa claus and now they realize that santa claus is not real right and so they 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 have been uh, betrayed constantly and that's the you know the theme of our society with the you know the secular uh, basis so so obviously it can't be a non-arab and uh, the Quraysh actually one of the things that is interesting, they never claimed that Rasulullah sallallahu wrote the Quran. In fact, they said Jabir, a Christian youth, uh, claimed to, they claimed that he wrote the Quran. But obviously, Allah subhanahu wa pointed out that he doesn't, he doesn't even speak Arabic. And so it's ridiculous that, uh, that you think that. And so obviously a non-Arab couldn't write the Quran because he doesn't have the means to write, uh, you know, to, to write a Quran. So that obviously is off the table. Then the next one that we can discuss is whether the Arabs wrote it, right? Because it came from the Arabian Peninsula, so maybe the Arabs wrote it. This is another kind of contender as to of that. But I think before getting into that, I think it's useful, especially as Muslims who are familiar, uh, and perhaps the, the story of Musa salam, can enlighten us as to the key elements of the proof, right? Of the proof. When we look at the, with the uh, proof that Musa salam brought to his people and to Fir'aun, we can see how that then can map to what happens with, with what Rasulullah brought. So, so just to kind of summarize the story of what happened with Fir'aun and Musa alayhi salam, 
as we know, Musa alayhi salam had the miracles. He had many, there were many signs, but the two that we can focus on is that when uh, he put his hand into his coat, it came out white without disease. And the other one was that when he took his wooden stick, it would turn into an actual biological snake. And so he presented these signs to Firaun. And I think at that moment that Firaun knew the gig was up, right? Because he knew this is the, really the messenger and now he's trying to figure out some kind of plan B. And so he gathered the magicians for the day of the festivals to have a you know, magic battle uh, with, uh, as, from his perspective, obviously, uh, you know, with Musa alayhi salam, right? He's trying to hold on to his throne. And we'll come to this also with the Quraysh, inshallah. And, and so they were gathered there on the day of the festivals. All the people are there. Um, and then, so they're deciding who to throw and Musa salam told the magicians to throw and they threw their ropes. And so obviously this was a trick. There was just a trick, it's a man-made sort of illusion. And then Musa salam threw his stick and it turned into an actual snake which then ate the ropes, right? So obviously, uh, only a biological snake can eat things, right? So it's a real snake, it's not a fake, it's not a rope because a rope can't do anything to another rope, right? And, and so at that point, the magicians uh, became Muslim. They, they testified with uh, that, you know, that they believed in uh, the Lord of the worlds and they clarified that's this Lord of uh, Musa and Harun And then not only did they testify at that moment, but they also testified with their lives. You know, you know as you know, the word Shaheed is your witness. They witnessed and they said that because Pharaoh said he was going to kill them in a brutal way. And so, and then he was, and, and even though they were, they realized that this is, <laughs> this is a straight ticket to Jannah, right? And so this, uh, this, this is the, the, you know, kind of summarizes what, what happened with, uh, with uh, at the time of Musa al-Islam. So how does this relate to uh, what happened at the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So we obviously know who the Nabi is, right? We know it's Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa We know it's Musa al-Islam. And the... Uh, the important thing actually in this story what sort of gets hidden when we're reading this in Islamic school as kids is that the magician's role is the role of the expert right so if you're sitting there in that crowd and you're witnessing that that duel between Musa salam and uh, the magicians though you don't know anything about magic you know for sure the experts in magic have testified with their lives that this is the truth, that this is really, this is, not a, this is not a trick, this is actually a miracle. So at that point, you, are now, you're, you can't claim ignorance anymore. Now the, 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 the clear signs, the, uh, the clear ayat have been presented to that crowd and they will be accountable for that on the Day of Judgment. So they, they had to believe, they had no choice at that point. And you can't even argue that like Musa bribed the magicians or something like that because the magicians literally got crucified and killed for, for their belief. So yeah, it's a, it's a direct uh, proof of that. Their testimony, yeah. And and and, uh, and uh, to your point, also it was Firaun who gathered the magicians. It's not, and I mean later on he says, "Oh, you guys were colluding in the background," but you know, uh, this is a personality disorder more than anything else, right? <laughs> yeah. So, but but that's that's uh, that that shows that the, the crowd knew that Firaun had this power. He brought the magicians. He was expecting to win, and he lost, right? So, so now what what does this mean with the miracle of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam? So. That, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him. So the, 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 the thing about the Arabs, they play the same role as the magicians. They are the experts in the Arabic language. Because as, as Brother Khalid, when he recited the ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the challenge 
was for the Arabs to produce a chapter, a surah, like what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed, right? Initially the challenge was 10 surah, then it came down to one surah, right? So what does that mean, right? Because like, that can be sometimes it's tangible, and that's why I like to start with the story of Musa al-Islam because we, that's a little bit more tangible. We can understand sticks don't turn into snakes, and as you said in the introduction, Anas, is that, you know, how can a book be miraculous, right? Because you can't have any, like you can't relate to this in German or Russian or English because it can only be in Arabic. There was only one miraculous book sent, right? So there's no way to relate, right? Yeah. And and so what, what uh, the, so the most important point is that the Quraysh had to produce this chapter. And so why did they have to produce this chapter? Why did they have to produce this surah? Couldn't, couldn't they just ignore Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and go about their own business? And the answer is no, right? Because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, what Allah, what, what Allah sent to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam rattled the Quraysh society. Just like, just like Firaun was threatened by Musa alayhi wasallam, right? And he had to respond. The Quraysh had the same problem. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was spreading the message, inviting people to la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, and people were accepting the call. And perhaps the most, uh, one of the most uh, shocks to the Quraysh society was when Umar bin Khattab, may Allah be pleased with them, and Hamza, may Allah be pleased with them, accepted Islam. And then they went around the Kaaba in two columns. So this is a movement. This is something they've never seen in their lives, right? So this is not something they can ignore. And I think that's one of the most interesting aspects about the shahada. If you can picture yourself in the time of Makkah, right, and you're taking your shahada, right? Now, when you analyze a shahada at that point, you, when you testify, there's no deity but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, there's no God but Allah, you're obviously renouncing the idols, which, which we know, and that was important to the Croatian society. But what is more, perhaps a little bit more interesting is you're testifying that now Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is your leader, right? No longer do you ascribe to tribalism. Because the tribe was everything, right? The tribe, if you didn't have a good tribe, like why did the, why did like, for example, Bilal, may Allah be pleased with them, or like Sumaya, may Allah, be, may Allah grant her gentle for those who are martyrdom, mm -hmm. why did they get destroyed? Because they didn't have good tribal protection. Where the other Sahaba, yeah, they got tortured, but it was a little bit easier on them because they had protection from their tribes, right? So what, what you're doing now, so if you're part of Banu Makhzum, which is the tribe of you know, Khalid Mulid, his father Walid bin Mughira, Abu Jahl, if you're part of the Banu Makhzum tribe and you testify that Muhammad sallallahu is your messenger, you're no longer part of that, right? You're now part of the, you can't call it a tribe anymore because it's not a tribe, right? Because now, now all these people are leaving their tribes and now coming ex, are claiming that Rasulullah sallallahu is their master, right? And so, the Quraysh could not ignore this. And of course, the Quran also attacked them. The Quran, through the ayat, it was attacking the Quraysh society. So it's, it's their tribalism is in danger. Their, their practices, like, waylil mutafifin. So when they used to do these corrupt economic practices, right? And we, we living in the capitalist era know these too well, right? So there was a protest, I know time passes on with the Occupy Wall Street, it's no longer current. But in the, when the banking crisis happened in 2008, there was this huge protest movement um, in 2011, around that time, called the Occupy Wall Street movement, where they were having massive protests to, to say, how come we, the 99%, don't matter? How come, how come the banks are getting all the bailouts? They got trillions of dollars of bailouts, but, but we, the 99%, didn't. So it did, what happened? 8,000 arrests. Now, that's, not, that's a statistic that's hard to find, right? Because they want you to think that these kids were just a bunch of losers and they just went home, but that's not what happened. 
And if you're, especially if you're African American or Hispanic, that is, uh, uh, if you get charged and you have a criminal record, you become a second class citizen, right? So it's, it's a serious thing to be processed in the United States as a person of color uh, and, and to have that uh, done. And, and, and this was a broad-based movement. There was, everyone was involved in it. But what, I wanted, what I'm trying to establish is when we, when we go back to Surya Mutafifin, we have to understand that, right? When you're exposing the corruption in society, what the norm is to crush that movement. We saw with Firaun, we see with Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we see with the capitalists in America in 2011 as well. So, so they, they had no choice but to respond. Right? I, think, I guess what you're pointing out here, Malik, is that Rasulullah's message was an existential threat to the Quraysh. Their tribal system, their economic structure, their social structure, everything was being challenged by this Quran. And what's interesting, just to add to Malik's point, is the Prophet had nothing else but the Quran, right? He didn't have an army. His tribe gave him protection from being, like, you know, killed, right? Um, I mean, of course, Allah was actually providing protection, but that was the means uh, anyway. But the, his tribe couldn't force other people to be Muslim. So all the Quraysh had to do to totally discredit the Prophet, you know, uh, was attack the only thing that he had that he was using to get people to be convinced to be Muslim, which is to produce one chapter like the Quran. That was the challenge they were faced with. And what's the, what's the shortest chapter of the Quran, uh, Malik? Yeah, so that's uh, Surah Kothar, right? Surah Kothar is 10 words, right? 10 words uh, is the shortest chapter. So, to your point, the challenge was just to arrange 10 words in the Quranic structure, and you would prove that this Quran is man-made, and then Rasulullah is making this up. That's all Quraysh had to do. They were, they were the, the leaders of Arabia, they were the ones who had all the resources, and you know, they couldn't do it. And they were a very poetic culture as well. They loved poetry. They, they had the mu'alliqat, which were poems that they hung on the Kaaba. They had poem competitions. Poems could start wars. Poems could stop wars, right? Like, these are people who really, really liked poetry. And it's not like they weren't aware of the Qur'an's unique literary style, right? Uh, so there's many uh, narrations that talk about, for example, uh, it was, I think, Abu Sufyan, and uh, Abu Jahl, Abu Jahl, and uh, Sakhar ibn, ibn Harb al Aqnas bin Shuraik. Uh, these were three, uh, you know, at the time disbelievers. One of them embraced Islam, um, and they would, they were chiefs of the Quraysh, like they were, they were prominent people, and they would hide outside of the house of the Prophet to hear him recite, and they would do it secretly so people wouldn't know that they were doing it because it would give the Prophet too much credibility if everyone knew they were doing this. And they ran into each other and they were like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Oh, we're, we're listening to the Quran. What do you think about it, right? And Abu, ja I, 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 sorry, Abu Sufyan, he said something like, some of it I recognize and some of it I don't understand. Um, and uh, Abu Jahl, he said that, you know, uh, my tribe and Muhammad's tribe, uh, we've been competing, you know, forever. Uh, they would feed these many people, we would feed these many people. They would give this much charity, we would give this much charity. Now they have a prophet, how are we supposed to compete with that, right? So he's not really denying the prophethood, he just refuses to accept it because his tribalism is so important to him. Um, we even know that um, Walid bin Mughira, who, who Malik mentioned, uh, he was a man who was highly respected in the Quraysh. He was like a very like, world-traveled and intelligent and wise man from their tribe. He was a thought leader. When he heard the Quran, uh, they sent him to like understand like 
what is this, right? What is this Qur'an? And he said, after hearing it, I have just heard Muhammad's words, which for sure are neither a humans nor a jinns. And he says, whether he's not, he didn't turn Muslim. He's just saying this as a, as a response. And he says, they are euphonious and relaxing, like a tree full of reachable fruits. They are of the highest quality and cannot be outperfected. So they were aware of the Qur'an. They knew the threat that it posed. They had every expertise to like, uh, you know, uh, that a human could have to meet the challenge of the Qur'an, to put 10 words together. Instead, you know, they used torture, they used wars, they used economic boycotts, they ended up losing all their leaders in the wars, right? And eventually became conquered by Islam, um, which indicates uh, what, what Malik is talking about. Yeah, so just, I think one of the things to, is just to kind of get a bit into what is, what is meant by the linguistic miracle of the Qur'an. I think that's, um, it's obviously something that is, uh, you know, requires a high level of Arabic understanding. Um, but it's important to kind of just kind of appreciate because one of the challenges we face is this about aesthetics. Is this about a beautiful a poem versus a not beautiful poem, right? Is it about a good essay or a bad essay? And so it's about structure. So at the time that the Quran was revealed, there were 16 poetic styles of speech and there were two prose styles, Saj and Mursa, right? So there were about 18 styles of speech. The Quran is not, has no relationship with these, these styles of speech. It's a completely different style of speech compared to that. So uh, when, uh, so when what, what it is is that, as you know, we know essay style. So for example, an essay, you know, you have, sorry kids, you're gonna have to write essays when you go to high school and university, so. So it's a, so you have like an opening paragraph, there's a thesis statement, there's three body paragraphs, and there's a concluding paragraph. And like this is, uh, you know, generally how an essay is, right? Even if you wrote the worst essay in the world, people, and you had those kind of elements in it, they would say this is an essay, right? And then there's poem, right? There's a poetic style, right? There's the, the, the poetic style, you know, has, has rhyme, right? So for example, like if you look at uh, sort of uh, what's kind of... Uh, the rhyming that kind of dominates today is hip hop, and one of the um, one of the recognized artists is Eminem. So, for example, he has a, one of his rhymes is his palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti. He's nervous, but on the surface he looks calm and ready. Right. So you he's can a hundred years old, guys. I just want to let you know. <laughs> so you can see that. Uh, uh, I was gonna go with KRS one, but I was like, uh, I, <laughs> I think this is good, bro. Yeah, eighties. That's from the eighties, right? So, <laughs> so, uh, so sweaty, heavy spaghetti, ready, right? So you can see that there is a certain kind of way he's expressing the um, the internal state of the person and and the external state and how the the composure and that type of thing. And you can see how the language he uses the rhyming uh, ability to do that. So no one's gonna say what Eminem wrote as an essay. They're not gonna, and they're not gonna say what an essay is a poem or a hip hop, you know, kind of uh, composition, right? So this, this kind of gives you an idea. And so what the miracle is, is that when you try to go and write Quran, it's like writing an essay and every time you try to write an essay, what comes out is a poem, right? That's essentially the miracle, right? The linguistic miracle is that you can study Quran, you can look at it, you can read it, you can understand it. It is the mo like, as uh, Anas described, Walid al-Muhira's reception for, uh, for, to it. You know, it is something amazing. If you have that, you know, for the Arabs who were, who were that, as I, and as I mentioned, just to remind ourselves, these Arabs are the ones who are the equivalent of the magicians. They're the ones who testified, except 
for the, the, the elites of Quraysh, they testified with their lives and they, they went on, on the wrong side of history, whereas the magicians were on the right side of history, right? Like they testified that. And of course there was Sahaba, like Hamza and, and all the Sahaba were on the right side as well, right? But the inability of the Quraysh to produce this chapter as uh, you know, Khalid read at the outset, that is essentially the miracle. And when I'm, when I'm discussing this, when, when I want to show the miracle in a very simple way to people, I just simply recite the first two ayat of Surah Fatiha. So just to give you a simple example, with word substitution, how the, you know, kind of just to give an, an idea of what it is. This is just skimming the surface. Obviously, I'm not a PhD in Arabic, unfortunately. But just to give an idea. So we know uh, the first two lines are, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. Praise be to Allah, Lord of the worlds, most beneficent, most merciful. So what I, what I, I tell the person I'm talking to, I, I'll say, okay, let's, let's look at uh, a synonym for alamin uh, or worlds, right, in English. So I say, okay, planets, kawakib, right? Alhamdulillahi Rabbil kawakib ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Like right away, you don't have to be an expert in Arabic. You can tell I've butchered this, what, this com beautiful composition that was there before. I've butchered it, right? And from a meaning perspective, alamin is a better term to use, a better word choice to express, express the lordship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Kawakib, you're limited, it's not as good as a word because it's just planets. It's not as comprehensive a term to express the lordship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so this is a quick way, uh, you know, kind of to express that. Uh, another thing we can look at is, for example, as you mentioned, is the shortest surah, which is uh, Surah Kothar. So Surah Kothar, um, uh, if you just look at the first line, inna atwina kal kothar. There's 11 rhetorical devices, right? Eminem has one, right? So there, there's, this, 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 there's 11 rhetorical devices. So just to give you an example of three. So inna. So there's actually two rhetorical devices in that. So first, um, in is the, the we. In, in Arabic, that, that's the, the royal we. So when Allah says, because in the ayah, the translation is, uh, we have granted, indeed, we have granted thee the abundance. And this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promising Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa the river in paradise, the Gautha. And so the inn is the royal we, which is a majestic way of, 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 uh, of, of, as a word choice, which gives the majesty to Allah subhanahu wa as the one who can grant such, such a, such a, such a you know, property, if you can call it that, to, to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa And then um, uh, inna, is indeed so it's emphatic it's 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 gonna this is uh this is, is it, it confers that this is like definitively going to happen so that's another rhetorical device i'm not going to go through all 11 but the third one is which is given and so that is when you say something's done because technically should you like because it's revealed in uh it, this is going to happen in the future when the ayah came down this is going to happen in the future right so should you say done or should you say this is going to happen in the future? So when, for example, like, let's say um, someone comes and asks you for a favor, right? You say, sure, I'll do it. Or you can say, consider it done, right? That's more definitive to say consider it done is, a, is an expression, it's a superior way of expressing that this is going to be accomplished, right? But something I discovered recently which really blew my mind so remember, there's 10 words in, in, in Surah Kothar. And this brother shared me this video. This is a scholar in Mauritania who, uh, uh, who, uh, who said this. In each surah, there's one, two, or three, four words that do not appear in any other surah. Right? So in Surah Kothar, Kothar, Wanhar, Shaniyaka, and Abtar, 
do not appear in the rest of the Quran, if you can believe that. It's absolutely mind-blowing like how that would happen. And there's, just to give you an idea, in Surah Baqarah, there's 12,000 words, right? And the whole Quran is over 150,000 words. So, like this, like it's miracle, like, you know, like how, like how could a human being, like just think of the mathematical impossibility of trying to do that by, by force, right? Yeah. There's no way a human being could have wrote, wrote this. But I think that the, the key, again, like I said, is that you don't have to be a PhD in Arabic. You don't even have to be an Arab. I'm not an Arab, right? The reason why I believe is the same reason why that crowd in front of Musa salam has to believe. Because we know that Rasulullah when he battled with the Quraysh, they lost. Quraysh are nobody. They're, that civilization has gone, right? And, and we know that Islam, Islam dominated over them. And we know Rasulullah and the Sahaba, who, the, the Arabs who sided, the Sahaba and the other Muslims, they were on the right side of history. So that is the real proof that, that when, when, when the challenge was issued, the Quraysh can do it. But this is just to give us a little bit of appreciation of, of the details. I, I, think, I think the summary works is that because, um, you know, basically you're, you're using, if anyone knows the Arabic, you're using all these different rhetorical devices and a rhyme structure, you're using eloquence, uh, and you're doing it in a way that isn't, like, you know, is not really poetry, but also rhymes, right? Or is not really a history, but also can tell you historical facts. And so it's, it's playing around with all of that in a way that the Arabs could not imitate. And once again, as Malik mentioned, you don't have to understand the Arabic parts of it. A lot of us, most of the ulma does not understand Arabic, right? Um, uh, but you don't have to understand the Arabic to know that this was uh, the word of Allah, because the proof that the Quraysh couldn't imitate it is, is baked into the history. We already know that. Uh, I don't know how you, how you feel about these arguments uh, as well, Mike, but something I like to use is also just the arguments from the Sira, and I don't think these are supposed to be your primary arguments, but these are arguments that can also help contextualize for people. That, you know, for example, um, the Rasulullah he couldn't have written the Qur'an because he couldn't read and write, right? That's, that's, part, of, that's part of the history. And if he didn't write it, and he's not claiming to have written it, and people are seeing that now this book is being used to like start a civilization, and someone else wrote it, why did they ever claim it, right? So I'd be like, wait, no, no, I wrote that. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing that I wrote. I can do it again. Like, yeah, of course, I wrote that, right? But no one made that claim. Uh, we know that even you know, going further to the point of Rasulullah not being able to write the Qur'an, we have the Hadith, and we have the Qur'an. And they're completely different speech styles. And a human being can't change their speech style, right? It's something that's built into you. I think, Malik, you had, a, you had a study about this as well, right? Yeah, so what it turns out is that MIT recently published an article about uh, uh, a Shakespearean play, Henry VIII. And so it was speculated, I think, in the mid-19th century, like in the 1850s around there, um, someone postulated that actually Henry, uh, William Shakespeare didn't write all of Henry VIII. And they theorized that this guy, John Fletcher, wrote part of it. So they decided to test this, test this out using um, artificial intelligence and specifically machine learning. Machine learning, just for everyone's benefit, what it is, you train a data set and then you uh, set the algorithm on it. So what they, and this is very important because it goes back to the proof of the Quran and why this could not have come from Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so what they did was they took John Fletcher's writings from the time specifically when Henry VIII was written. Why did they have to do that? 
The reason why they had to do that because man's man's speech changes over time, right? Like what you, what you what, how you how I started in the 1990s is very different than how I write now, right? For example, right? Your cha- your your pattern of speech changes over time, and that's something amazing with the Quran. There's no change, right? There's no change in from the 23 years of revelation. No change. But the second thing is is interesting is that when they train Fletcher's speech and and Shakespeare's speech, you can clearly see they could clearly tell what sections were written by Fletcher and what sections were written by Shakespeare. And so when we look at the Sahih Hadith of Rasulullah that were narrated about Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Mutawatir Hadith, and we compare it to the, the Quran, we can see there is no relationship between the two. The, even if you read it as a non-Arab, when you try to read the Hadith, it's very hard, right? Um, and because it's not like Quran, Quran has a totally different feel to it. Yeah, sure, it's more familiar, but like the, you can tell that the, these are two different uh, that you know one is you know spoken by Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the other one is from Allah subhanahu wa taala. Yeah, and to be clear, Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam obviously a very eloquent man, you know, someone who could uh, summarize a, a lot in very few words. Um, but his style of speech is not is not the Quran, right? Also, I mean, uh, we look at the people who were closest to Rasulullah sallallahu right? His wives, his companions, they saw, they experienced revelation happen to him. Right, uh, there was a time when Zaid bin Thabit, uh, you know, Rasulullah was resting on his knee, and then Wahi started, and Zaid said, "My knee got so heavy, I thought it would break." Right, that's not normal. Right, there's no there's no way for a person to change their body density. Right, but Zaid experienced this just having his knee uh, being rested on by Rasulullah Aisha Arithan how would mention that uh, you know, Rasulullah would start sweating on a, on a cold day uh, when revelation started. Omar Rithan, who he mentioned that uh, when revelation would be happening, he would hear like a, like a buzzing sound coming from Rasulullah right? Like a, almost like a frequency, like a low hum. Um, and that would be something that he would, he would experience. So the, I mean, these are obviously not the primary proofs, right? But it's, it contextualizes that this was a real man who lived in a real city where people experienced and interacted with him, and there's no way that he could have written it himself or you know, be taking it from someone else without any of these people figuring it out, right? Um, and yet these people were willing to, to live and die for him because they knew what he, what he had was from Allah. Um, I do want to ask you something though, uh, Malik. So you're saying that this form of speech is miraculous, right? But and you're saying it's miraculous because it's outside of the Quraysh and therefore human capacity to do. But let me just throw a, throw a crazy question out for you. Could it be aliens, right? Could there be some kind of alien life form that is beyond human, you know, mental and physical capacity? I think we have a question as well. I'll take it now. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I, say it, it, I mean, could it not be aliens, right? Uh, they, they could have some brain powers that we don't have, right? So maybe they wrote the Quran, and that's why the Quraysh couldn't, uh, couldn't imitate it. Yeah, it's, 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 a good, it's a good point to raise because, uh, you know, people will raise that. People, like some of the Christians you discuss with might say that, you know, now that's from Shaitan, right? So um, I think you've experienced that, right? So, um, so it's, it's a good question because it goes again to how do we... We have to go back to the original question: Where did this Quran come from, right? And from a rational perspective, we have to like list the candidates based on some kind of understanding, right? So, 
for example, there were, like, as, as Quran, as I mentioned, there were non-Arabic speakers in, the time, in that time. So could it have come from, them, come from them, right? Like, there's a basis to make that, uh, uh, like, one of the possibilities. So when, when we look at the issue of aliens, the, 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 what we first have to establish is that what, why is this being admitted into the possible categories of, of people who could have revealed the Quran? And, and, that, and that's the thing, is to ask that question, is to kind of return it back to the questioner and to say, well, what's your basis for making this conclusion? Like, what, what are these aliens? What do they look like? What does their knowledge look like? How do, you, how, do you, how do you know they spoke Arabic? For example, we know that English people don't, like Germans don't speak Arabic. They speak German, right? What do, what do aliens speak? Do you even know what an alien speaks, right? How do you know they exist? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is a big one. So, so, so the point is, is that this is just a, a means to, uh, you know, kind of, it's, it's, it's it, it, when if people are maybe, you know, you should always, whenever someone asks you something, be sincere and a- answer them. But people who are just playing and just, this is amusement and just a joke. And that's common amongst people because, especially the, when you're younger, right? Because, you know, this life is just, uh, you know, just amusement and fun and there's no kind of reality to it. And people really don't take seriously, going again back to the analogy of the plane ride, like where is this plane going, right? Um, and, and so, so the, the, the point though is that the, the aim here is to, uh, to make this non-divine, right? Like the idea is to kind of reduce that because whatever you're going to, whatever you're going to come, it goes back to what I said about the matter. It's limited. Still, even if this, whatever you're proposing is limited, right? And then, but the point is that it's not, the authorship is divine and, you know, you have clearly laid out the different categories. And, and therefore, it's to talk seriously. And then you know, with these people who kind of talk, does the floor exist and these types of things, like you'll ask when you get into university, like philosophy, philosophy students, you know, like are we in a simulation? And, you know, what, how do you know anything? And, you know, and of course, they don't make those kind of things when they have to eat. They, go, they know how to use money <laughs> yeah. to buy food and eat, right? And then when you kind of point that out to them, then, they, like, then the, the best they can admit to you is that I, I did that once where the guy's like, yeah, I have two ways of thinking, right? So, <laughs> so it's, uh, you know. The real way and the way I use to get you to stop talking to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, no, so, so yeah, it, it, you know, like philosophy will eat your brain, right? So, you know, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, that's the thing about Islam. Islam is not, I was talking to brother earlier about, you know, philosophy and these types of things. I know is that Islam is about, you know, application. It's about, it's, it's about bringing, you know, Rahmatullah Alameen, Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam came with the guidance to guide us so that we can live with each other. Like the point of this proofs and all that is that, you know, that to build a justice, a just society, to build a khilafah, right? Like the point is that why will the khilafah work, right? Like one example is like when you look at the, the difference between prohibition in the khilafah or in the Islamic state of Rasulullah Sallallahu and prohibition in America, right? When you have yaqeen, you have something, when you know this is really from Allah, this hukam, the, the, what was described is the Sahaba would spit it out. Some even forced themselves to vomit. You're talking about the prohibition of alcohol, just to be clear. Yeah. In, when, the, when, the, when the prohibition of alcohol came to Medina, immediate obedience, right? But because you have certainty, you have 100% yakin that this is really from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like when it's, when it's the government in America in the 1930s that prohibited it, some special interest groups, there's some kind of scam, there's some kind of conspiracy. We saw this in COVID, right? Uh, that, but that was, why would you, why do you trust the government, right? Like, why, why should you listen to them, right? You know, they're just a man like you, right? This is the essential problem of authority, right? Like, why should I obey you? You're not God. Like, you know this expression that they say, who died and made you God, right? 
Because there's something in the fitra that kind of says like only Allah has the right to run our lives, right? You you know you you when when it's another human being is like, you know it's a scam, right? Like we see that with its car insurance. Don't get me started about car insurance, but uh, <laughs> it's 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 like these things are you know there are ways to exploit you, take your money. There's always some kind of game there. But when it's Allah subhanahu wa taala, that goes back to what I said. When you walk through the door of Iman, you have and and you and you, uh, and you can submit in totality. You have you have comfort. We're happy to pay our zakat, 2.5%. We hate paying our taxes, right? Because we're just getting robbed, right? So it's, it's but the, this is the difference when you have a, 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 a command from Allah to pay for your money and when a man tells you to kind of pay, pay the money. Yeah, and I think the way I always bring them back to is what do you mean by alien, right? Because if what you mean by alien is a limited life form like myself, right? Then it still couldn't create a Qur'an that, for example, the Qur'an says if this were really not from Allah, you would find in it contradictions, right? The Qur'an is revealed over 23 years. It has no editorial process. Rasulullah recites it once. Now it's part of the Qur'an. He can't take it back, right? Um, and it doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't contradict reality. It doesn't contradict what we know about the physical universe or history or anything like that. Um, it is a totally coherent, uh, you know, work right which couldn't be done by any limited being right limited beings just don't operate that way if you mean by alien you know a being that is outside of uh, space and time that is absolutely unlimited and that created the universe then you're just talking about Allah right which yeah that is who the Quran is from um, so I, I think that's a that's a that's a good uh, summary uh, of that so I'm just I'm just going to conclude now uh, because and I want to open it up to questions as well after that. But just to give give my conclusion, I'll let Malik wrap up his thoughts as well. Um, the point of this event and the point of us talking about the proofs, uh, as Malik just mentioned, is if the Quran is the word of Allah, then what does it mean for our lives, right? Should we just be using it once again in our personal ibadat? Should we just be using it for barakah, you know? And uh, in my culture, uh, you know, uh, if you get married, you walk under a Qur'an. If you go into a new house to be living there, they give you a Qur'an to put in the house first, right? Which, mashallah, like, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But what I'm saying is, is that, is that it? Is that what the Qur'an is for? Is it like a talisman that you keep in your shelf, right? Or is the Qur'an something that is supposed to lead the transformation, right? There's a, a great writer by the name of Khura Murad uh, from, from the subcontinent and he wrote uh, in one of his books that if you look at the Qur'an and the transformation it had in the lives of the Sahaba and we know the transformation it had and then you think that this is an eternal miracle don't you feel entitled to some of that transformation? Don't you think you have the right to transform the way they did? But why don't you, right? And, and really it's about understanding the Qur'an that way, understanding it as the word of Allah and bringing it into our lives. And then also the Sahaba didn't just bring it into their own lives. They brought it into their community. They brought it into their society. They protested against the, the tyrant rulers of their time. And eventually, uh, you know, they created a new civilization and spread that civilization across three continents uh, because of this book. Right? That's the kind of transformation we should seek. Uh, we're in the last, last days of Ramadan. Uh, that's the kind of transformation we should have in the rest of our year and try to commit to that. So that inshallah when we're here next year, 
uh, we're not in the same place that we were right now. Uh, so that's, that's my conclusion. Malik, did you have any concluding thoughts? Yeah, I was just going to say is that um, this, this is a very important topic for us um, in Canada, especially uh, as I mentioned at, this, uh, at the outset, um, and that it's, it's about us having confidence and spreading that confidence, especially to our young, but to everybody, right? Like everyone, parents should know this so they know what to speak to their, you know, youth, their, their kids about uh, and their other relatives. And I think that this is one of the most important things that we should spread. I, you know, it's, it's something that the khatibs should speak about in the masajid. Uh, it's very important uh, to kind of uh, to have this as someone who was uh, a youth here in Canada, was quite lost. Um, it, you know, when I discovered this, this was this, this was like what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's hard evidence about this, right? I was shocked, right? So, uh, and I don't think I'm the only one, right? I think there are a lot of people like me out there, um, you know, uh, who have that, and and it, and we need to do our best as you know the people in this room and the people who are listening to this. It is that we have to do our best to spread this idea and reach out to people and, 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 and save people, right? Because at the end of the day, and this is the last point I'm gonna make, inshallah, this is the criterion. If you believe in this, you work on this, you go to Jannah. If you disbelieve in this, and you do what you want, you go to the Jahannam. And so this is a clear proof, and you can see what, what, what Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam brought to us, and what we are presenting is what he brought to us, was a clear and distinctive, like there's no doubt, like there's no doubt in this, you know what we presented so this is a very important work that we don't just keep this for ourselves that we spread it because it's a life and death matter I'm going to open it up to questions now uh, so if anyone has a question uh, please uh, let us know inshallah I'll repeat your question uh, once uh, once you've asked it I think uh, I think we did really well Malik they have no <laughs> questions uh, we have a question from the back. Yes, brother. Where? Both of you, mashallah, for this presentation. You do have maybe a comment to, and then maybe you can end it with a question a bit, or give some elaboration of what you think of this idea. There would be actually some people would come out and say, if you look at the Quran itself, and you see that in it, there are the structure of it itself. One. And then the other thing is that if you look at this stupid, it is like that, what it, it is about, what, what's in it actually. Mm. You would see commands, regulations, you see um, Allah ordering us to do certain things, and you see stories of previous generations, of prophets as well. So if you look at this all together, how would actually uh, this can be used to actually prove as well that it is not from the Arabs, or even from Muhammad so. So I'll repeat the question. Uh, the brother is asking, uh, or I guess commenting, that there are people who say that if you look at the composition of the Qur'an structurally, but also the content of the Qur'an, it's got stories, it's of previous nations, it's got commands, it's got reminders, it's got all of that put together. Uh, how can that unique blend of content be used to prove that the Qur'an is uh, is from Allah. Uh, Malik, I'll let you go first. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, so, so the Here. so uh, it's a good it's a good point. And, and I would what I would say is that the the coherence of the of the Quran is there, right? Despite it having these these linguistic structures. Um, it is. It still has 
um, a meaning, it's still informative, right? And it, it informs you uh, of, 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 of the reality. Because what we're seeking, at the end of the day, the reason why we need this Qur'an is the guidance. We need to have a way of organizing our lives as individuals and, and, more, and, and even broadly as societies. And that's exactly what you find in the Qur'an, right? Um, you find that, uh, you know, the Qur'an will account Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa for example, like you're looking at specific incidents that happened, uh, you know, with, uh, for example, uh, you know, Surah Abasa, where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was accounted for uh, turning away from the blind man by Allah subhanahu wa So obviously this could not, these kind of, you know, kind of incidents within the Qur'an could not have come from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa because if it was man-made, uh, you know, because if it's man-made, then it's a tyrant who's doing these things, like Musaylama, for example, who, who made up, uh, you know, uh, made up, you know, uh, his, I don't, you, I don't know what you want to call it, but it was like, uh, I was listening to a scholar talk about this, and he's saying it's that it seems the angel's talking more to your stomach than to your mind, right? Because his, 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 his work uh, was, in quotes, uh, was more about food than anything else. <laughs> so, so... So when you look, when you look at the, when you look at what Allah Subhanahu wa Taala revealed, you find it is an enlightening book. It, it has guidance and it has uh, a way. One convert told me the way the Quran actually speaks to you. It actually puts you in a corner to force you to take a position. Um, and even a, a non-Muslim that I know has a similar sort of you know experience with the Quran. That it's very different than like he's familiar with the Bible, um, and it. He, he felt the same way that this this is an assertiveness to it. So, so yes, of course, there's the linguistic miracle. But then, from a meaning perspective, there's a lot uh, of uh, when you interact with it, it interacts with you in, in a very personal way. So, uh, and then on top of that, there are definitely incidents in the Quran that point to that this is not the work of uh, of, of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam or another person because the uh, the Quran. Is clearly from 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 the Creator. I think the only thing I'd add to that is that uh, the Quran is a miracle in every single way in which you experience it, right? Um, and so, what we were kind of zeroing in on was even if you take a look at the shortest chapter of the Quran, that may not necessarily have a command or history or anything like that. Even then, you can tell this is Quran, right? This is why you can't take a hadith and say, "Oh, maybe this is an eye of the Quran." No, you can't do that because every single chapter of the Qur'an is clearly Qur'an and can't be human speech, right? But then if you experience the Qur'an as a whole, then definitely there's so much in there. Then uh, that's where the non-contradiction point comes in, right? That the Qur'an doesn't contradict itself, that it doesn't contradict reality, that it doesn't contradict history, right? There's people who like can make entire like essays and videos about how, you know, how the Qur'an describes the theology of the ancient Egyptians is very accurate as opposed to you know, other books, or how the Qur'an describes the ruling structures of the Egyptians at the time of Musa versus the time of, uh, of, of the Prophet Yusuf um, is very different, right? Uh, and, and correct, accurate. And the Bible, for example, doesn't do that. Uh, and so like, you know, you can, every way you experience the Qur'an is miraculous. There was a guy in France who converted to Islam uh, because he said that the sonic composition of the Qur'an he was a music producer. He said the sonic composition of the Qur'an is perfect, right? There is nothing like that in terms of its sonic composition. And as a music producer, he was able to like 
pick that up. And the scholar who, you know, got him to embrace Islam, he said, I have no idea what he's talking about. But he's these Muslims, so I guess it's fine, right? And then he comes back like a year later and he says, you know, I have this question uh, in, in uh, uh, Surah Idhaja, you know, uh, why is there a break in, in between the last two ayahs? And the, the scholar is like, I, I don't, I don't know, right? And then he says, wait, no, but there's another way of reciting it where you actually recite those two ayahs together, right? And you, you don't put the break in there. Um, and he said, oh, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, now I'm, you know, now I'm Muslim again. And the scholar once again was like, I have no idea what he's talking about, right? Um, and so, but the point is, however you experience the Quran is miraculous, but to, to, if you really want to zero in on the miracle, Surah Kothar is enough, right? You don't need to get into the other chapters. Any uh, any other questions, comments, brother? Um, so the, my question is: there will be some people that um, like the polytheists. Mm. When you mentioned uh, something about aliens, so like, what? Uh, how would you um, talk to someone who is uh, saying there is a polytheist and they say? Uh, Maybe the Quran came from multiple uh, eternal. Yeah. No, that's an excellent question. I'll take a crack at this one first, if that's okay, Malik. Go ahead. Um, but uh, the, the Quran actually addresses that, right? The Quran says that if there was more than one creator, you would see chaos in the universe, right? And so your, your, your real point with them, if they're already acknowledging that the Quran is from a divine eternal source, you've won like 80% of the battle, right? Now you have like 20% of the battle left, which is how do you explain to them Tawheed, right? How do you explain to them that, yes, you already, we both agree this Quran is from a, a, an eternal being, right? But what you're saying is there's multiple eternal beings, so let me talk to you about that, right? And the way to talk about that would be to say that, you know, uh, there can't be more than one unlimited being in the way that we understand one versus two, right? Because if there were more than one, then they would be limiting each other, right? They'd be limiting each other by space or by time or by ability or something, right? Uh, and if they were all responsible for creating the universe, then there would be chaos in the universe because they wouldn't have a single creative vision, right? One would say, no, I want to do it this way, and the other would say, I want to do it this way. And so really what you're trying to prove to them now is not that the Qur'an is from Allah, they already believe that. You're trying to get to prove to them that Allah is one, right? Which is to say that more than one being, okay, well now we're not talking about an unlimited being anymore, and, uh, and it, the universe would be in chaos if there was more than one being. Uh, I don't know if you had anything to add to that, Malik. I got nothing to add. Just like, okay. Does that answer your question, though? Yeah. Okay. Any, uh, any other questions, comments, concerns? Yes. Yeah, so basically with the, uh, the history point, some people might say it's too disconnected, it's too, it's happened too far in the world, like, uh, mm. in terms of the formulation system. You don't repeat the question. I've heard this argument before from Congress, so what sort of be that connection that we So the, the question the brother is asking is some people might think that the argument from history, the argument about the Quraysh not being able to imitate the Quran, is too distant, too disconnected from their reality, it happened too long ago, and so it doesn't really apply anymore. Uh, Malik, why don't you take this one? Yeah, so the, the, in a sense the question is, is that um, 
because we weren't there, and this is a kind of the, it's an interesting question because when you look at the miracle of the NBA, so of, for example, Isa alayhi salam, if you're not present there, then you can't claim, like today, because you didn't witness Isa alayhi salam's miracle, then how do you claim as a Christian that this was a miracle? You don't know whether what was passed on to you. It could, it could have been made up, right? As Muslims, we know this is true because it was revealed in the Quran, right? And that's the key difference, is that the key difference is that what is difference between people who saw miracles a long time ago and what we see, we have the miracle in our hands, right? It's right here with us, right? So, so where did the, 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 or, the origin is, where did this Quran come from, right? And so, so that's why you have to go back to its origin point, right? Because that origin point, those three, those four possibilities were the word were, were uh, relevant at that time and because it's proven it's from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of what we've proven therefore it is, it's the creator then that doesn't matter right because now we've already proven without a shadow of a doubt that the creator was the one responsible for the authorship and so he in the Quran he says that he's going to protect the Quran he is the one who's going to uh, uh, ensure that it's completeness right because that's an interesting thing about the miracle of the Quran is that you as a human if you try to enter things into there it's detectable, right? Because you can't, because it goes back to the miracle. Like you're going to write anything in Saj and Mursal and, and those other, you know, 16 styles of poetry. So anything you write in there will be detected. So it's impossible that no, the, the, the Quranic miracle protects the Quran, right? And so, so the key thing is that origin point. Once you establish the origin point that it couldn't have been a human who wrote it, then you know that this is a divine book. And what you're holding is something divine. So the issue of his, historic, the historical gap between us and what happened is irrelevant. Yeah. And to add to Malik's point, like, imagine you had a preserved proof of like the which physical phenomenon led to the origin of the universe. Right? I'm not talking about, of course, Allah did it. We know that. But I mean like specifically what mechanism was used for the universe to be created. Would anyone tell you, ah, oh, man, that happened too long ago. What do you, what, what do you care? No, it's, it, it's hugely relevant because you live in the universe, right? And it was, it was how it was created. And what Malik is pointing to is in the Quran, we have every single portion of this miracle is preserved, right? The book itself is preserved. The language it was revealed in is preserved. The man who it was revealed to, his life is preserved. The society that he was in and what they said and how they responded, all of that is preserved, right? And so if you are somebody who is genuine about finding the answer to the question, right, that we started with, how do we get here, where are we going, that's a gold mine for you. That's not not relevant, that's, that's uniquely relevant. And you have to dig into that gold mine and figure out what you can determine. If you end up determining that, oh no, it's, you know, this doesn't make sense to me, I mean, I don't know how you would do that, but fine, hypothetically fine, right? But to say, to brush it off as saying it happened a long time ago, everything happened a long time ago, right? Um, but it's still very uniquely relevant to you and everything has been preserved for you, for you to be able to look at now. Plus, the Qur'an still hasn't been imitated. It's a living miracle, right? It's not like only the Quraysh could imitate it or if they didn't know, that the challenge stands, right? And so that's something that, uh, that can be looked at as well. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. The, the challenge will continue until the day of judgment. And he continues to challenge us. Absolutely. Yes, brother. So, so are you saying basically it's like um, time has no barriers, right? 
Absolutely. Is it relevant to what the history So what I'm saying is because it's preserved, uh, you can still visit that time and see what happened, right? All the factors that can lead you to, like everything that was available to Abu Bakr and Omar and Uthman and Ali and Bilal and the entire family of Yasser, uh, you know, may Allah be pleased with all of them. Everything that was available to them to make their decision is available to you to make your decision, right? And so because you have all the same factors and you can consider them, uh, what does time matter, right? If you had a video of like, you know, something that happened 200 years ago and, you know, someone was asking, oh, what hat was he wearing 200 years ago? You could find that out if you had that video. It doesn't matter that it happened 200 years ago because the video exists, right? So it's, it's similar to that. Okay, good. Alhamdulillah. Uh, I think I think we'll wrap up here unless someone else has a, has a burning question. We're obviously available uh, otherwise as well. Uh, I forgot to get a sign up sheet, but if if anyone this is this this is like we record this. This goes into a podcast form as well. So if you give us your contact information, I'll make sure to send you uh, the podcast. You can subscribe to it on Spotify, and uh, inshallah, you can you can follow us from there. I had to send it to the brother here, and I didn't, so uh, I just remembered that. Um, but um, but inshallah, you can you can follow us. Jazakallah khair for joining us uh, today. Uh, may Allah accept everything from us this Ramadan, including the effort that we did today. Uh, may Allah forgive our sins, forgive the sins of those who are present and those who aren't, those who are alive and those who have passed away. Uh, and may Allah make us of those who are people of the Qur'an and who are not of those on the Day of Judgment, who Allah and the Messenger say have made hijrah from the Qur'an. Uh, and make uh, our time in this Ramadan and the Quran testify for us on the Day of Judgment. Amin, Amin.